Hello, Bethel fandom. It is I, your host, Dynamic Symmetry on Tumblr and Twitter and just about everywhere else. I am recording this for the second time because we lost power last night as I was putting the finishing touches on this fucking thing. Like, it was almost completely done. I was, I was probably about 15 minutes from being done. I was working on, like, one of the very last music tracks for the outro. And a freak storm came up out of nowhere and rolled through. And we lost power very suddenly. And I had, like, been like, okay, I know this is coming. It's going to be bad. I should save my work. And I did. This wasn't my fault. But my computer shut off so suddenly that when it turned back on and I came in and tried to reopen the file, it was completely corrupted. This has never happened to me before, but apparently this is something that happens periodically with Audacity. And this is especially kind of funny because, well, you know, not in a ha-ha way, but in a life-fucking-sucks-sometimes way. Because I've heard from other podcasters that Audacity can sometimes just be an asshole. Like, for no apparent reason. And, and you just lose stuff, and you don't even always know why. And I've been really lucky to date, and Audacity hasn't been an asshole, but I guess this is my inaugural podcaster Audacity is an asshole experience. Thankfully, I only lost about 15 minutes of actual recorded work. The story files, because I saved them separately, both to Audacity and to MP3, those are all intact, so I'm not going to have to do what has frankly ended up being three full days of production work, recording and post-production. I put a lot of work into this, you guys. I'm not like, you guys should all appreciate me so much because and worship me because I put so much work into this. Nobody asked me to put this much work into this. I know that. But I do put a lot of fucking work into this. So, yeah. So, I'm recording this for the second time, and I'm kind of pissed off about that. But hey, you know, it's fine. This is fine. Everything's fine. So, uh, yeah, um, I am coming to you with some news. Uh, those of you who follow me on Tumblr and have actually noticed that I said this already know about this. I am making a format change. I'm not changing anything catastrophically, but I am... Well, I mean, first of all, uh, when I when I first started this, you know, I said I was going to try and do it bi-monthly. And that kind of worked out and it kind of didn't. One of the reasons why I said I was going to do it bi-monthly is because I figured this is one of those projects that if it's ambitious enough, if I don't hold myself to some kind of schedule, it's going to be very easy to just sort of not do it. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't want this to be something I started doing and then I just kind of quit because I couldn't be bothered. But I haven't been able to keep up the bi-monthly schedule. It's just, it, again, the, the production time, I'm doing it all by myself. I have no assistance in this. That's fine because I'm a control freak, but the, the fact is I do this on myself and it is incredibly time consuming. And it's work I enjoy, but I can't reasonably do this twice a month. For the most part, there are always some months that are an exception because this varies with my workload. But in fact, for various reasons, the format that I've been doing up until now, where, you know, there's there's FICREX and then there's some discussion and then I do reading and then I wrap up and say goodbye. That is actually more difficult in some respects, only some, but in some respects, than just doing a podcast episode that is entirely readings. So I've decided that what I'm going to do is I'm going to alternate. I'm going to have one podcast episode that's completely reading, which is, this is going to be the first one of those. And then I'm going to have another one that is the format that I've been keeping up until now. Now, one of the reasons why I think this is a really cool thing to do, actually, and why I'm really, really excited about it, is that, as I, as I said when I first started doing Keep Singing, I love reading fic, but I'm pretty much going to have to confine myself to one-shots, because doing things serially in that format, I think, is a, is a little difficult. I, I think it can be more difficult for people to follow it. Among other things, they have to listen to a whole bunch of other blathering before they get to the actual reading. 
and it confines me to one short fic per podcast. Otherwise, you know, it takes, I end up taking three hours. And some some of you, I think, would be fine with that, but I think most of you probably not so much. So what this enables me to do is I can actually read things serially, which I'm really excited about because this opens up an entirely new range of stuff that I can read. Uh, and among other things, I can tackle some of the stuff that's more popular in this fandom. And I don't just want to read the popular stuff. I also want to be reading stuff that not enough people know about when I can find it. But it, it, it means that I can spread myself in ways that I couldn't before. And I have an entire hour and 45 minutes slash two hours, between an hour and a half and two hours, to work with, which means I don't just read one single serial thing. I can read more than one. So what I'm going to be doing for this first episode, and I'm going to be continuing until these fix are done, or at least till one of them is done, one of them is a work in progress, so the author is going to have to get off their ass and finish it. This is my push for that. Uh, I'm going to be doing Safe Up Here With You, which is me. I wrote that. Uh, it's, it's probably my third favorite in this fandom that I've written that's done. The other two being Everything Where It Belongs and I'll Be Yours for a Song. Howl is not on the list because Howl is not done, so I'm not comfortable evaluating it yet. Although I like it so far. So I'm going to be reading Safe Up Here With You. I'm going to be reading also, and I'm, I'm so excited for this, I'm going to be reading The Vampire Cat's Burn, which I know a lot of you really like. I know that's kind of a fandom favorite. And one of the reasons why I'm super excited about that is that I actually, for a lot of reasons, have been completely neglecting multi-chapter stuff. A lot of it has to do with how much I've been writing and, and what that does to my attention span. Uh, I think I've said before, probably more than once, in 2015 I wrote over a million words of fanfiction. It was literally, and I really do mean this, it was literally insane. One of the reasons why I was able to write that much is because I was hiding from my own mental illness in some pretty major ways. But I wrote a huge amount and that kills my attention span. Among other things, it means I don't read because I'm just writing so much, which by the way isn't good. You should always be reading if you're writing. So I, I have been reading one-shots and, you know, like very short chapter things, but longer chapter things have completely been neglecting. Uh, this is also the first time I've been tackling Fall Right In, which is inexcusable. I mean, it really is. Uh, I want to do Fall Right In. I, I want to do Feral. I want to catch up with uh, Always Fine. There's so much stuff I want to read. And Burn is one of those things that I've been meaning to read fucking ever, and finally I'm getting a chance to do that. Now, one of the reasons why it's cool that I'm reading it is because as of right now, I've only read as far as chapter two. I read that far and then right in the middle of reading it, I decided on this format change. And then I was like, well, I'm already reading this and I actually, you know, am shamefully behind on multi-chapter stuff. What if I read this as I read it? So I'll be reading it as I actually go through it, except for chapter two, chapter one and two, I'm going into this cold. I've mostly been able to keep myself unspoiled. I don't actually know what really happens in this fic. You're getting to experience me experiencing it for the first time. And I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm really excited about doing that because you get to hear me freak out because I'm assuming there's stuff to, to freak out about in this because it's a vampire cat and, and, and the, that's a fantastic writer and lots and lots of love there. So I'm going to be doing that. And then I'm going to, uh, as a part of this format, do like a one shot. So two chapters of two multi-chapter, lengthy multi-chapter fix, and then one one shot. And then that's going to be the format. Uh, for today, uh, the one shot is going to be Redneck Saints. This is where it starts. I've mentioned this before in Fic Rex. This fic is awful. I mean, in a good way, like where I heap abuse on stuff that I really love. I, I feel like I should warn for this. This is a fic where Daryl is the one who gets the bat. And it's not super gory. It's not like explicitly violent or anything, 
but I mean, it's, it's life ruining. So if you don't like a heavy angst, I, I wouldn't go near it. And in fact, safe up here with you is also something that I should warn for, except for, well, until I started writing everything where it belongs, safe up here with you is probably the most fucked up thing I'd ever written in this fandom. Unless you count all my daddy kink, which I don't because that stuff is happy. I mean, yeah, it's, it's actually kind of messed up, but it's all happy and sweet and everybody's in love and having a good time. Safe Up Here With You is messed the fuck up. And there is a lot of explicit violence and there is a lot of deeply unhealthy relationship dynamics and there's stuff about mental illness. And there is what I would consider minor stuff with consent problems. There's not actual like, I would characterize as sexual assault, but only in the sense of something happens that, that Beth can't consent to. It's not like, extreme it's not violent or anything but there's problems with the consent and then later on i would argue that there's also something that happens on her end that there's problems with consent so i mean I'll, i'll warn for that in the chapter when it appears but be aware going in that all of this stuff is present and and it's it's kind of upsetting and also in the first chapter of burn there's also some problems with sexual assault nothing again too extreme or upsetting i personally think but if that's something that you're easily upset by just please be aware of that going in it happens pretty much right on the front end. So I think if you want to skip over it, it shouldn't be too hard to do that. And it doesn't take up a huge amount of the chapter. So that's good too. So yeah, warnings kind of on all three of these. And this is an incredibly angsty way of opening this up, but I love angst. If you know me, you know that. So this is absolutely fine for me. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into it. I'm going to be starting with burn. I'm going to continue with safe up here with you. And then the very last fic will be this is where it starts by redneck saints. So I will speak to you on the flip side. Burn by the Vampire Cat Chapter 1 Hell She's crying. He only realizes it after the third time she says his name. The pleading in her voice, the hitch in her throat. Daryl. Her voice is loud enough to get his attention loud enough to cut through the adrenaline-fueled buzz that has his muscles twitching and his mind racing. He turns to look at her. She stands in the middle of the ugly square rug, positioned like a chess piece. Daryl, please, she says again. She moves slightly toward him, arms trembling, fingers flexing. He's not sure it's an invitation, but goes to her anyway. No thinking, none of the dumbass voices in his head getting in the way. He just goes, pulling her into his arms, crossbow clanging to the ground as he allows her to wrap herself around him, while he breathes in the musty scent of her sweat, her dirty hair. He doesn't care. It's the best smell in the world right now. The past 24 hours have been hell. At least the seventh circle. Maybe the eighth, but Daryl doesn't know because he hadn't been allowed to read Dante's Inferno as a kid. His old man had called it pretentious college white boy trash and tossed it away with all his mother's other books when Daryl was twelve made a huge fucking bonfire out of her collection while his mod cried into the spent cigarettes festering in her ashtray. So, no, he hadn't read it. But his mom had told him about it once, right before one of her religious episodes, when she holed herself up in her bedroom with a bottle of Jack and prayed with all her being that God would take her away from his old man. And then she'd gone and died in a fire. Sometimes God has a shitty sense of humor. Either way, he knows the basics. She'd given him that much, even if his recollection was fuzzy. Souls in torment, fire and brimstone and gnashing of teeth, criminals assigned to various levels of torture depending on the misdeed. So he figures if hell is a real place, something he doubts, 
and their specific digs for murderers and sadists, then he somehow just run through it and come out on the other side, not unscathed, not reborn, not rejuvenated, just alive. And right now that's good enough for him. In fact, it's better than good. It's positively fucking fantastic with a goddamn cherry on top, because there's been a spot of heaven in this day of hell. No, more than a spot, a great big chunk of the divine. He's glad he's not a religious man, or he'd start calling himself blessed or something. He isn't, so he won't, but he can't deny that by rights he should be dead. They should be dead. Yet somehow they aren't, even though it didn't make any sense. Even though they should both be lying together in a ditch somewhere, bullets in their brains. A tangled, putrid final embrace. A fitting end to them and the world they lived in. When heaven and hell combine, sometimes it spits out some crazy-ass shit. He'd found her. Or, more accurately, Len had found her. That was Hell's little joke. It's a little kick in the nuts. Len. Fucking Len. Daryl had been following Joe's group for three weeks. Maybe a month. He couldn't remember anymore. Time loses its meaning in the apocalypse, no matter how many times old men in stupid hats wind their wristwatches. What he does remember is that he was looking for an exit of sorts when it happened, a moment to slip away from these post-cataclysm whack-job cowboys. He'd known from the first day they found him that it wasn't going to end well. Couldn't end well. These guys, they were the worst kind of bad news before the world went to shit. Now the kind of bad news they were didn't bear thinking about. At first, he figured he could handle it. Thought they were like Merle. They weren't. Merle was a pussycat compared to them. Sure, his brother could talk the talk, but when it came down to it, Daryl didn't think even he would have been able to walk the walk. And Merle was right. Daryl had always been the sweet one. No way he would have been able to keep up with these hooligans. Sooner or later, some shit would have gone down, and he wouldn't have been able to stay quiet. Loneliness was one thing, but this? This level of depravity? That was another. Thus, he'd been planning his own extraction, and the fancy-ass Atlanta house they were ransacking was as good a point as any to part ways. Not that he planned on a big farewell. Wasn't looking for a goodbye card or a cake. Keep things simple, uncomplicated. Wait until he was on watch and everyone was asleep and slip off into the night, down the road, into the forest, towards the tracks. With any luck, it would be early morning before they noticed he was gone. At least, that had been the plan. It didn't work out. Not exactly. He was stripping a red fleece blanket from a double bed when he heard Len shouting that he had claimed something. He'd ignored it at first, even though Len sounded more excited than usual. Most likely it was something dumb. Another cottontail, a doily, a deflated basketball. Who knew what the hell Len liked? The guy was whack. But when he heard a small shriek, followed by a thud and Len's increasingly agitated voice booming, claimed, claimed, like some kind of mantra, things changed. It wasn't Len. Not really. He was just being himself, ranting and bitching like he could somehow make things the way he wanted them if he just shouted loud and long enough. Daryl knew enough shitheads like that. Hell, there were times he was one of them. The more noise you made, the bigger dick you had. So no, not Len. But the shriek. Something about it. Something so familiar. And then a word. Stop! And everything fell apart. Details are hazy. In these situations, they usually are. He's pretty sure his legs were moving before his brain was in gear. Pretty sure he threw himself down the stairs, too. Doesn't remember running across the hall, but does remember it was a big fucking hall. The only thing he was sure of was that voice. It had done nothing but sass him and call him out and needle him since the prison fell. 
that had sung him to sleep at night and opened his eyes and heart in the morning. It was her. It had to be. And he hated himself for a second when he realized he hoped it wasn't. As if there was another woman on earth that deserved whatever Len had in store for her. Sometimes the apocalypse makes you play fast and loose with morality. It had been a clusterfuck from the second he'd set foot in the lounge. It was Beth. He had to blink a few times and mentally slap himself to be sure, but it was her. Clothes torn and filthy. That yellow golf shirt barely recognizable under the grime. Cardigan gone. Hair at greasy blonde bird's nest. But it was her. And in a moment which he later identified as ridiculously whimsical, he thought she looked beautiful. She was Beth. It wasn't like she could look anything else. She lay curled up in a corner, next to a broken floor lamp, Len grabbing at her while she tried to shield her face. He ran to her, saying her name like a dumbass lovesick schoolboy, giving away his weakness almost immediately as she raised her head and hope flared in those big blue eyes. And it damn near killed him. But not as much as her bruises, her scratches, Len's dirty fingers pressing into the pale skin of her arms so tightly that the little meat she had on her bones bulged like a plumped cushion on either side of his hands. He remembers that he was shouting. He's not really sure what, but he knows he was. That's pretty much certain. He also remembers that he pushed Len aside and winced at the purple blooms, the exact shape of Len's fingers, appearing on her flesh. But he hadn't even touched her before he was wrestled to the ground. Tony, Harley, and Dan raining blows down on him, dragging him to a nasty chintz couch, holding his arms, immobilizing him, shutting him down. Len was amused, more than amused, actually. He stood up slowly, taking his time to spit blood from his mouth, eyes twinkling as he swaggered over to Beth, snapping his hand against her wrist, pulling her to her feet, and drawing her close. Knew there was a bitch! His voice was gravelly, smug as he pressed his mouth to her hair, breathing deeply like she was his next meal. No wonder you was walking around like a dead man. She's a fine one, Bowman. A real fine one. Maybe a little skinny, but oh, so sweet where it counts. She didn't flinch as Len pressed a hand to her chest, his lips ghosting close to her neck. She didn't do anything. She looked like she'd checked out, the way abused dogs do when it just becomes too much. When there's no more fight left, and they go away to some safe corner of their heads. A look that says, do what you want, I won't fight you. It broke his fucking heart. But then Len grabbed her crotch, pressing a dirty palm against the faded fabric of her jeans. A hitching breath escaped her lips, and there was a flicker in her eyes. He thought it was fear. Looking back, he now knows it was anger. Rage. He wrenched free, knocking Harley to the ground stomping hard on Tony's feet as he hurled himself across the room. He grabbed at Len's hair, filthy hands closing on the even filthier matted strands, pulling back hard and knocking his head against the wall, hoping to see it pop like an overripe watermelon and run down the paintwork in a red wave. It was the plan. plan was shit. They were harsher the second time round, using the butts of their rifles and a tire iron they'd picked up from an abandoned gas stop. A searing pain exploded in his left shoulder as the iron came down over and over again, bruising skin, spraining bone. He didn't care. All he wanted was to erase that glazed look from her eyes, wipe the crusted blood from her skin, soothe the purple bruises marring her flesh. Maybe it took a while for her to realize it really was him. Maybe she hadn't had time to give herself that mental slap. Maybe she only realized the gravity of the situation when she saw him go down under their boots. But suddenly she was sobbing his name, shouting to leave him be twisting away from Len's grasp, 
fighting and screaming and biting, feral, wild, but small. The smallest of the group, no match for a full-grown man, even a cocksucker like Len. When he cuffed her, she went down, almost immediately, head banging hard against the empty wall cabinet before she sprawled out on the floor. Their eyes met briefly across the room, a moment that said nothing and everything as he thought back to their last encounter, the way she'd needled his feelings out of him, the way she'd even given him hope that they could have it, that she wouldn't reject him. All he wanted to do was tell her, now, once and for all, how he felt, before it was too late. Fact was, though, it was already too late. What changed your mind? You, Beth. Always you. As the blows rained down on him, he wanted to laugh at the irony that, yes, he'd found a way out. After all the time he'd been looking, this was the easiest way to check out. It should have been funny. But it wasn't, because he was leaving her behind. Another of Hell's little jokes, anything he touched turned to shit. She'd been drawn into the vortex of his cursed existence, and now he was leaving her, alone and afraid. They'd abuse her and then discard her, if she was lucky. If she wasn't, well... Vaguely, he was aware of Harley's raised boot coming toward his face. This was it. This was the way it ended. He wasn't afraid of dying. Hell couldn't be worse than this. The Ninth Circle was looking good right now, the ring for traitors, because that's what he was. That's where he deserved to burn for checking out on her now. He just prayed they wouldn't damage his brain too badly, so he could come back and eat them alive. And then, out of nowhere, Joe, telling them to stop, ordering a cease and desist. We ain't animals, gentlemen, he said, and Daryl tried to snort, but a stream of blood erupted from his nose instead. Joe looked at him, eyes cool, mouth set, but not angry. Look at you, Daryl. Joe's voice sounded like he was admonishing a disobedient child as he pulled him to his feet and roughly shoved him back onto the couch. He sat down with a wet thwack, his left shoulder jarring, blood running down his arm and seeping into the ugly flower-patterned upholstery. He suddenly felt absurdly worried about dirtying the furniture, although there wasn't much that wouldn't be an improvement on the baby blue background and cerise roses. Christ, there were even dogs on it. Beagle puppies with goofy grins. Some people, man. Some fucking people. Gentlemen, I need everyone to just calm down, Joe said evenly, sitting down on an overstuffed yet equally ugly armchair across from Daryl. Take a breath, sit your asses down, and just reflect. I claimed her, Joe. Len's voice had a petulant edge. But he tried to take her anyway. He broke the rules, Joe. He knows the rules, and he broke them. Yes, Len, yes, he did, Joe agreed, never taking his eyes away from Daryl. But let's all just take a moment here. Get our bearings. They sat in silence for a while, all eyes on Joe, waiting for him to say something. Anything. For his part, Joe remained still, looking out the window at the dreary gray sky, ignoring them all, leaning on the silence, drawing it out. Outside, the cutlery barrier that hung around the house tinkled in the wind, but inside it was quiet. Quiet except for her small, hitching breaths and Len's heavy panting. Harley shuffled. Tony scratched. Daryl seethed, watching Beth through bloodied eyes. She stared back, eyes locked on him as if he was some kind of answer, a blessing, a savior. He wasn't. Because God sure as shit didn't answer prayers for Daryl Dixon. Then, eventually, after what seemed like decades, Joe looked up, his gaze drifting over each of them barely registering Beth shoved into the corner, Len looming over her, watching her like some kind of rabid guard dog. Now, we know the rules, 
Claimed means claimed. That's how things work. His voice was even measured as he looked Daryl directly in the eye. Daryl, do you have a previous claim on this woman? Daryl spat blood. Daryl? Yeah, he said eventually, trying to keep his eyes on Joe, away from Beth and the hope that was written all over her face. She's mine. You claimed her? Joe asked. We were together before. Before we found you at the roadside? It was a stupid question. Of course it had been before they found him. What did they think? He'd been carrying around in his backpack? And what? Decided now to let her out for air? Fuck these guys. Fuck them with a bag full of salty dicks. Yeah. Okay. Joe's voice was oddly comforting, and he turned to look at Len and Beth. I think we'd all do well here to consider Daryl's point of view for a moment. This was his bitch. He's had her, they were together, and she belonged to him. So he sees her now. In his mind, she's already claimed. By him. Ah, hell no, Joe, Len said, dragging Beth closer. I saw her first. I claimed her. I don't give a shit if he's at her a hundred times over. She's mine because I claimed her. Those are the rules. Screw the rules, Daryl growled. Yes, Len. Yes, you did, Joe agreed. But the irritation in his voice was clear. And she's yours now. I ain't disputing that. No one is. All I'm saying is that in this case, there ain't no reason to beat a man to death. Tony, imagine it was Lenore. Or what if it was Betty? What I am saying, gentlemen, is that Daryl ain't breaking the rules. This is more of a property dispute. And Daryl, we can talk about your role in this group in the morning. We have a good thing here, and I, for one, don't want to lose it. You're valuable, but you got to follow the rules, man. Ain't no other way around it. Daryl looked up, blinking away blood. But Daryl, Joe said evenly, this bitch here, she's Lens now. You got to let it go. It didn't take many more punches to subdue him, but it took a few. Len was a strange cat. Long after Joe, Harley, Tony, and Billy got bored and went to bed, he was still parading Beth around like she was some carnival prize at a long-forgotten funfair. He gave her bizarre orders. Bring me that vase. Break that picture. Sit on the stairs. It made no sense until you realized he got off equally on the anticipation and the actual deed. He liked the power, the ability to enforce his will, to scare her with her complete lack of autonomy first, before settling in to show her what he could actually do to her. For the most part, Len's show was really nothing more than childish taunts, more to piss Daryl off than anything else. Yeah, he'd eventually take it further, but he had a hard-on for making Daryl watch first. It was a subtlety Daryl hadn't expected, but when he'd given it a moment's thought, it made some kind of sick sense. But it had to escalate. Daryl knew that. There was no way Len would allow himself to be the brunt of any limp dick jokes if he didn't seal the deal. And frankly, there was no other way this was going to end. It couldn't. These things, ugly and horrible as they may be, are written into the stars in a very specific way. It is what it is. It happens like it does. The others had left Dan both on watch and to keep an eye on Daryl, but chances were that a herd could take down the house before Dan would be able to tear his gaze from Beth. He'd done little more than tie Daryl's hands and feet, and pretty much left him on the couch while he got all leery watching the little spectacle Len was putting on. It must have been around two in the morning when Len decided to rev things up a notch. He grabbed Beth around the neck and kissed her face, sloppy wet kisses that left a sheen of saliva on her skin. She recoiled and he laughed, pulling out his knife and cutting her shirt off, before forcing her to kiss him again, threatening to shoot Daryl in the head if she didn't make it good. She did. 
She came through like a fucking champ, but the disgust on her face couldn't be disguised. Oh, this one's a peach, ain't she? Sweet as freshly baked apple pie. Lens sniffed at her as she flinched. Daryl shifted against his bonds. You want a slice of my pie, Daryl? Len asked as he wrapped a hand around her neck. You want a taste? This guy. This fucking guy. And that was when she put a knife through Len's eye. You gotta stay who you are. The problem was, Daryl realized later when he had a moment to think, people underestimated Beth. They always had. Sure, give her someone else's baby to raise, put her in charge of bringing up the next generation while everyone else messed about farming and running councils. But all hell broke loose if she suggested going on a run. Because then this shit would start. Maggie, Glenn, even Rick sometimes. Never Herschel, though, which was telling all by itself. Oh, she can't. What about the children? Oh, she doesn't know anything about guns. She'll slow us down. She'll hold us up. Yeah, so let's leave her like fucking Sleeping Beauty in a fucking ivory tower. Don't sweat it. The men will save her. Caveman style. So she was small and slight. So she was young. So goddamn what? The meek shall inherit the earth and all that. And that's why no one thought to frisk her for weapons. Sure, Len was feeling her up, but from his glazed eyes and slack jaw, he wouldn't have been able to find a rocket launcher if she'd strap one to her ass. So, truth be told, Daryl hadn't been surprised when she'd pulled his hunting knife, that goddamn hunting knife he'd spent ages looking for, out of her boot and driven it hard and fast into Len's eye. He tried to scream, but the sound had been cut off abruptly as she gave the blade a vicious twist and withdrew it. His blood sprang from the wound and gushing out all over her face and bra in a messy red wave. This guy. This fucking guy. Dan, never quick off the bat at the best of times, was still flailing around for his gun when she made it to the couch. As he stood to grab her, Daryl threw his head back, connecting with the cartilage in Dan's nose. More blood sprayed, a loud shriek as he lost his balance, and Beth buried the knife in his chin, up through his skull. He could already hear beds creaking upstairs as she sliced through the bonds tying his wrists and ankles. She said his name, and her voice was a little breathless. Mostly relief, but something more, something he wasn't sure he knew how to deal with right then. But he didn't have to. There was no time. Not time for anything other than throwing her his vest and getting the hell out of Dodge. She grabbed Len's pack as they ran into the hall, slung it over her shoulder, and he could swear he heard her whisper, Claim, douchebag, as she did. He wanted to tell her she wasn't going to find nothing good in the bag. It was Lens, after all. Probably got an ant farm or half a bottle of self-tan in there. Probably both. He'd seen Len claim a Barbie doll once. Guy was whack. But he didn't. Just hoisted his crossbow and backpack, wincing his pain shot through his arm, and held out his hand to her. She took it, and he hadn't had the time to contemplate how much he'd missed this, missed her. So he didn't. He couldn't, because then they'd never leave and Joe would find them in a pool of dead men's blood. Instead, he just twined his fingers through hers as they ran to the front door, down the steps, under the chain of cutlery and hubcaps, and into the woods. And they'd run all night. Thinking back, he doesn't know how they did it. It was dark. They slipped. They fell. They collided with low branches and tripped over exposed roots. She was exhausted. He was wounded. But they hadn't stopped, not once. Not even to take a piss or a drink of water. They'd just gone for it, ignoring the scrapes and the bruises, navigating the uneven terrain, trying to put as much distance as they could between them and Joe, between them and the walkers haunting the woods, between them and anyone. 
There were times she wanted to give up, swearing that her legs couldn't handle it anymore, that she was too exhausted, and even though his muscles were burning, his knees threatening to give way beneath him, he told her to shut the fuck up because there was no way on God's earth he was losing her again, and he'd carry her if he fucking had to. They both knew there was no way he could do that, so she just kept up. Sooner or later, we always run. The car was a lucky break, the luckiest since the prison fell. Beth saw it in the hazy dawn light, parked next to the railway tracks. A black Yaris, small and compact, a girly car, but it had three-quarter tank of gas and a spare key under the license plate. And as Daryl leaned down on the accelerator, he had a wild thought, a crazy, messed-up thought of Herschel telling him to look after Beth, to keep his girl, their girl, safe. He shook his head. Keep moving. Don't let the stink of sentimentality get in your way. You just gotta go. And he went voices roaring in his head over the adrenaline pumping in his veins. Sometimes the only way out of hell is through. And through they went, the little car jerking along the gravel of the tracks, choking, grumbling and screaming its objections to his manhandling. He knew it wasn't made for this, but he didn't care. He hoped the noise attracted more walkers, a whole herd of them directed at Joe, a herd that would tear them apart, destroy them the same way they wanted to destroy her. He almost missed the road, only seeing it at the last second while swerving to miss a group of four walkers. Two adults, two kids. A family group. He wondered crazily if walkers didn't retain memory somewhere, if somehow they stuck together in the groups they knew in life, the ones they were dimly drawn to. He shook his head. Don't let the madness in, Dixon. Once it's in, it never gets out. Once it's in, you start seeing chupacabras and hallucinating about missing family members and quoting books you never read. He didn't need that. Beth didn't need that. Initially, he just wanted to get away, his focus completely on getting Joe off their trail. But when he hit the actual road, and the car stopped wailing at him, all he wanted to do was drive until there was no more distance left to put between Beth and Joe. He knew he wasn't thinking right. They needed to find a place to stop, a place to sleep before the gas ran out. The car was a hell of a find, and they'd need it again, but every time he thought of slowing down... Every time they passed a house that looked empty, he sped up a little, telling himself just one more mile, just one more minute, and they'd be safe. He didn't know how long they drove. It must have been hours, hours, and hours, and hours, but the gaslight was blinking by the time she put a gentle hand on his arm. Daryl, stop, she said softly. Stop. It took him a moment to snap out of it, to realize what had been going on, to remember that they hadn't said two words to each other, even though it felt like they'd been speaking forever. Even though he knew it was all in his head, his questions, his confessions. We left them behind ages ago. Her voice was steady, but there was a catch in it, a catch that told him she wasn't nearly as calm as she wanted him to think. You can't drive with that arm. It's fine, he mumbled as the newly remembered pain rushed to his shoulder. Daryl, I got this. If you want to carry on driving, let me. It's fine, he said again. Daryl, I killed two men back there. I can drive a goddamn car. Her voice was sterner, agitated. He looked at her, her bloodstained face, her bruised arms, the way his vest gaped open, and the grimy bra underneath. He thought it had once been pale pink, pale pink and girly, with a smattering of polka dots and cream lace. It was just a dirty smear now, a brown mess of lens-crusted blood. Yeah, he said, putting his foot on the brake. Yeah, okay. They swapped and she drove, slower than him, carefully, looking out for somewhere they could stop. She asked once if he was okay, 
and he'd grunted a response. He tried to ask where she'd been, what happened, but she asked him if they could talk about it later. She was here now, and that's all that mattered. And he'd said, okay, that was all that mattered. Ain't nothing in the world that mattered more. It was past noon and drizzling miserably when she found a small gated housing complex on the outskirts of some town where rich old people went to die. He'd sat mutely by her side, trying to make sense of the day, still not believing she was here with him, alive. He wondered if this was some kind of divine trick and she was an illusion. She was hell's real kick in the nuts. We can stay here, she said as the car came to a stop. Maybe we can stay a while. He waited, listening, the birds singing, the gentle pitter-patter of the rain, the gurgle hiss of stray walkers, her gentle breathing over the thrum of his own heart. The silence stretched, and he turned to her. Beth, I... he began, not knowing where he was going or what he was going to say. She looked at him expectantly, and her eyes were so big and so blue and so deep that he swallowed whatever words may have come to him. Nothing, he said, shaking his head. Nothing. And then he was all action. Don't think. Don't consider. Don't be a goddamn dumbass like you were the last time. Just do what you do best, Dixon. Just do. He jumped out of the car, pulled the gate open, and stabbed two lonely walkers on the drive. She drove in and turned the car to face the road. And in that moment, he wanted to tell her how impossibly proud of her he was. Sure, she'd killed two men. God knows how many others. She held her own under impossible circumstances. But somehow the simple act of turning the car round spoke volumes more about her instincts for survival. Yeah, it was crazy and stupid, and his priorities were really messed up, but he couldn't give a rat's ass. He bolted the gate. It wouldn't keep humans out, but it'd do against walkers, and maybe he could find a padlock or a chain of some kind to secure it. She climbed out of the car and stood next to him, surveying the row of houses in front of them. Eight identical white terraced houses opening out onto an enclosed communal garden at the back. He could make out a greenish swimming pool and a set of swings, a small barbecue covered by a tattered blue and green beach umbrella. Which one? she asked. He pointed to the one closest to the gate. That one's as good as any. She nodded, pulling her knife out of her boot, walking up the stairs to bang loudly on the front window. They waited a minute, but the house was empty, and slowly they crept inside. It wasn't what you'd expect from houses like these. He thought it would have been fancier, Maybe not as fancy as the ones he'd ransacked with Joe, but not quite the dump it was. To be fair, it looked like it had been abandoned long before the world went to shit and never opened again until now. It smelled musty, but not of death and rot and walkers, which was a nice change. The only furniture was a sagging couch, an old stained mattress, a broken mirror, and an ugly square black mat. Everything else from the cupboards to the grimy bathroom had been stripped, except for some plastic ice cream tubs which he somehow had the foresight to stick out on the windowsills to collect rainwater. Other than that, there was nothing. Not even an empty shampoo bottle or a tattered shower curtain. In his periphery, he noticed that she'd stopped in front of the broken mirror, eyes locked on the jagged shards that distorted her features into something monstrous and unrecognizable. If he was thinking straight, he would have gone to her and pulled her away, given her a task to occupy her mind and hands. We all have jobs to do. But he wasn't. And that was when she started to sob. And when she said his name, he knew he couldn't ignore her. He couldn't pretend she was just some girl having a meltdown. And that's when he went to her. That's how he ended up holding her tightly on the stupid square rug. How his arms had locked around her. 
and nothing could have pulled him away. That's how he remembered how good it was to be with Beth Green, and how he'd let the whole damn world burn if it meant keeping her safe. We should burn it down. And now? Well, now he knows the hug has gone on for much longer than appropriate, even for people trying to deal with every demon they ever had inside them. But he doesn't care. If Beth needs him, that's where he is. If the gods deign that she should find comfort in him, then that's what he'll be for her. It's for Beth. It's only ever been for Beth. Eventually she pulls him to the couch. It's old and broken on the one side, but hell, at least it's not blue chintz. Her crying has stopped, but her face is still stained with blood and tears. He holds her, even though his arm is killing him. His vest looks ridiculous on her, and probably exposes more than it covers. But he likes that she's wearing something of his, so he doesn't say anything, although eventually he lets go of her long enough to give her a spare cotton knit sweater from his pack. It was once a pale blue, now it's a grimy gray, but it's cleaner than anything either of them have on. He lets her look at his shoulder after she insists. It's bruised, but he can move it, and she uses some of the bottled water and a rag to clean the blood off him. He does the same for her, hands shaking as he wipes her face and neck, fingertips brushing her cool skin as he reaches her delicate collarbones, before handing her the rag to clean further. He looks away out of force of habit when she changes out of his vest and her bra, though he suspects that this is really nothing more than an artificial show of modesty between them, and one that will soon be discarded. His shirt is ridiculously big on her, and she swims in it, but it's not covered in blood the smell of himself on her does things to him he finds worrisome and exhilarating at the same time. When she's as clean as she will be for now, she moves back next to him on the couch. She rests her head on the backrest and smiles wanly, letting out a deep sigh. And he's still not sure that she's really here, that she's back with him. And he starts to worry this is a dream, and he'll wake up in a cold garage with Len claiming something or other out of his pack, and this whole screwed-up cycle will start all over again. He has a crazy thought that maybe he died, and this is the waiting room, purgatory or some shit like that. And Beth is an angel, waiting by his side until his fate is decided. He wonders how he will fare. He guesses not well. Too many failures, too many broken promises. He'll end up standing beside men like the governor, Len, Merle, and all the good people, Herschel, T-Dog, Lori, Dale, Andrea, Sophia, will be somewhere else, somewhere far away. And then soon Beth will be gone too. He's destined to lose her over and over again. He shakes his head. His thoughts are becoming fractured and crazy even for him. He feels himself being pulled into an abyss of despair and insanity, losing his grip one finger at a time as he tries desperately to make sense of everything. And then she's there, like a goddamn lifeline out of his mind. She takes his hand in her own, fingers twisting around his, grip tightening, and it's like she's reeling him in, pulling him back to land. He looks down at their laced hands, his, dirty and clumsy, covering hers, small and delicate. She's tiny, and that makes him feel boorish, hulking, even though he's neither particularly tall nor broad. What happened, Daryl? Why were you with them? she asks, and her voice is another thread to follow back to reality. He sighs, and, meeting her eyes, suddenly he can't help but think of the day he found Bob, how he'd waved away their concerns that he didn't know them, didn't know the kind of people they were. He felt that way when he met Joe. 
Anything to not be alone. Anyone to fill that void. He told himself that what kind of people they were didn't matter. But it does matter. Like how it matters to cover a dead woman's naked body. How it matters to write thank you notes. And remember that walkers were once people. People like him. People like Beth. He pulls out of her grasp to put his arm around her, drawing her against him so that her head rests in the hollow below his shoulder. She's a perfect fit against him as she winds around him in that special Beth way, that way that makes him feel both like a terrified schoolboy and the biggest badass of all time. He wants to laugh at himself from a few months ago, the dumbass who barely managed to touch her elbow and tried so hard to stop his gaze from resting on the perfect flesh of her creamy shoulder. He drags her closer, wrapping his other arm around her, resting his chin on her head, thinking he should kiss the dirty mop of hair before realizing that he already has and that her hand has slipped under the edges of his shirt, resting against the sweaty flesh of his chest. His heart is racing, and he knows she can hear it. The cat's out of the bag, and he's fucked if he knows whether it's an indoor or outdoor one. I was waiting, he says, his mouth dry. Waiting for what? You. There's no use denying it any longer. She knows. She has to. She does. The truth of it is in her, oh, like it was once before. He waits. This is her chance. Her chance to untangle herself from him, from this inappropriate embrace where she's wearing no bra and a shirt so big the tiniest movement causes it to gape. But she doesn't. She just presses harder against him turning her face so that her cheek rests against the flesh of his chest. He thinks she might have kissed him as she moved, but he's not sure. He wants to ask her again where she's been, but he doesn't want to press it, so he runs a hand up her arm, across her shoulder, and to the back of her neck, where he fingers the downy strands of her hair. She sucks in a deep breath, and he thinks she'll pull away. Part of him wants her to pull away, but she doesn't. She touches his collarbones lightly with the tip of her index finger, and his skin tightens into goose flesh beneath her hands. He can feel the heat rising on his face as his cheeks flush, and then racing downwards a mile a minute to his groin. He tries to shift, conscious that he has seconds before his body's betrayal becomes plain to her, but she moves with him, oblivious of his intentions or discomfort. He swallows, makes a show of looking out the window. It's gloomy and rainy. No change, then. You should get some sleep, he says, and even as he says it, he's wishing he hadn't, because he's already anticipating the cold emptiness she'll leave behind when she goes. So should you. Saw a mattress in the spare room, he tells her, but she burrows harder against him, and he knows there's no way she's missed his arousal. For a second, he's wildly embarrassed. The need to push her away and say something awful wrestles with his need for her to stay right where she is. But not very hard, or very diligently. I'm not leaving you. I won't leave you. All right. He lets go of her long enough to grab the blanket from his pack and pull it around them. It's thick and warm, and she trembles against him as he covers her. He's tired, and his body, especially his shoulder, aches. But he holds her, scared that if he lets her go, she'll just be gone again. And this will all be a dream, and he'll be back with Joe and Len raiding houses and fighting a losing battle against his demons. She shifts against him, and he gasps as her head bumps against his bruises, and he knows he can't do this for too much longer. 
Beth. Hmm? I need to... He makes a vague gesture at the couch and grimaces as his muscles cramp up with the movement. Yeah, she says, scooting over as he lies down on his unwounded side. He waits to see if she'll balk and decide the mattress is a better idea after all, but she doesn't miss a beat, stretching out next to him, pulling the blanket with her, head against his chest, legs pressed against his. He hesitates for a second, not knowing where to put his hands, but she snuggles again and takes his arm, draping it over her waist, lips fluttering against his skin. He pulls her a little closer, hands splayed on the small of her back, and she looks up at him and her eyes are enormous in the gray afternoon light. He stares back, waiting. She kisses his jaw once, and then his cheek. When she moves to touch her mouth to his chin, he moves with her, ever so slightly, so that his lips brush hers. And he's already cursing himself for being such a damn fool, but she falls into him, allowing her mouth to linger on his, lips parting slightly before pulling away and locking that cool blue gaze on him. He stares back, afraid to move, afraid to even breathe, wishing he could find a way to keep his heart in his chest and not his throat, wishing there was somewhere else to look other than her face, those pink lips, high cheekbones, and cornflower blue eyes. And then, seemingly satisfied with what she has seen, she rests her head against his chest, planting a chaste kiss on his skin. And despite the fact that he can't hear anything but the pounding of his heart as it pounds away like a freaking jackhammer on steroids inside him, it's seconds before he's asleep. Safe Up Here With You by Dynamic Symmetry Chapter 1 In Time This Won't Even Matter Fifteen miles outside the Atlanta city limits is where they part ways. It's uncomfortable. It was never going to not be uncomfortable. Aaron stands awkwardly in that expressively awkward way only Aaron can stand and looks from Daryl to Edwards and back again. They've talked about this, about what has to be done, about what Daryl has decided has to be done. So there's no more discussion to be had at this point, but the potential for it is hovering in the air like smoke. And there is smoke. Daryl is smoking because it's something to do with his hands, and because the nicotine is perversely soothing, stroking through his blood like soft little fingers. Except thinking about it like that twists up his gut all over again. It's a cloudy morning, threatening rain, colder than it has been. He can't help but think this is appropriate. This and the black hulks of the burned-out suburban housing development they're in the middle of. Not many walkers here, for a wonder. They have time. You're sure about this? Aaron's gaze flicks past Daryl to the bike behind him. To what's already there, waiting. Waiting in silence. Silence since they left. You... His voice drops as if he doesn't want Edwards to hear him even though Edwards is standing right next to him. Edwards is fiddling with his own fingers, and looking not only awkward, but profoundly nervous. Edwards is not a fan of this idea. Edwards has a lot of misgivings, though he's voiced them only hesitantly. Daryl has been wanting to break his nose since he properly met the guy. Never mind what he did. Never mind that he probably owes the man a debt he'll never be able to pay. He ignores him, nods at Aaron, 
Yes, he's sure. To the extent that he can be sure of anything right now. Which is difficult. The world was ripped out from under him once, then again, and now a third time. And he never would have expected it would happen like this. Never in a million years of wild imagination. I can't go back. He shakes his head. He's not going to look at the bike. He can't right now. If he does, he might not be able to talk. Not like this. I can't... I can't do that. Not to them. Not to her. Maggie. He means Maggie, because she's been the center of the reasoning he's expressed, though he knows, and is sure Aaron suspects, that ultimately Maggie is an excuse. A cover for something far more selfish. When I can, you tell her. Thanks for that, friend. Aaron's smile is wan. But he'll do it. He's a good man. One of the few left. She was right. They do still exist. And it didn't take Daryl long to figure it out. And Aaron will do this for him, because he understands. He knows what it is to lose someone. Find them again. I'll come back. He said it before, and he's saying it now. And it's meant as a promise, but it sounds weak. He's not sure of anything, and that includes everything he's saying. I'll come back with her. Soon. You tell her that, too, all right? Aaron nods. Then, quietly, You know she's probably never going to forgive you. She might get it. Might. But he doesn't really believe that. Maggie might forgive him, but she'll never get it. Because she wasn't here. Because she didn't have to look at this and decide. Didn't have to face what it meant. What has to be done. Then again, she might not have had any more idea than he does. Maybe she'd get it after all. Take care of yourself. Aaron steps forward, reaches out, and Daryl takes his hand, clasps it. He has been a friend. An unexpected one, but a friend all the same. Every one of his friends since the world fell apart has been unexpected, if it comes to that. He never saw them coming. Never saw her coming. Never saw her coming either time. You too. He glances toward Edwards and favors him with a single tiny nod. He can manage that. Maybe someday he'll even manage a thank you. That very much remains to be seen. Hesitation, just for a moment. Then Aaron turns, lays a hand on Edwards' shoulder, begins to herd him toward the car. Daryl watches them go, watches them climb in, the car rumble to life, watches them circle around in the wide, shady intersection, watches them drive away. Thunder mutters in the distance, and he tips his head back and stares up at that unfriendly sky, drops a cigarette onto the pavement, and crushes it out with his heel. He turns to the bike. She's there, sitting on it, and her flat, slightly blank gaze is fixed on him. She's utterly expressionless. He sighs and looks briefly away, at the blackened carcass of a minivan, an equally blackened body curled fetal in a final, lethal return to infancy, at the houses, all the houses, at how the two of them are surrounded by corpses of all kinds. In the distance, finally, he sees a couple of forms shambling toward them. They can't stay here, and not because of any physical danger. This place is bad for her. Every second they remain, he senses it pulling her further and further away from him. She's already so far. He manages to look at her again, squares his shoulders. Ready? Nothing. Then she nods, once, slow, and something that isn't at all relief, but might someday be, rushes into him. That much. She can do that much. Surely that's a good sign. 
He is not in any way, shape, or form equipped to handle this. He doesn't think anyone else would be. Doesn't think anyone else could. All right. He closes the rest of the short distance to the bike and swings a leg over, settles in front of her. Hold on. Carl, please hold on to me. Another moment of nothing. Then her arms wrap around his waist and they feel firm enough. He doesn't think she'll let go and fall. Except she might. He knows that. This is a risk, and a huge one. It's all a risk now. Every minute with her is risking everything. She might release him and tumble and break her already broken head even further, and there won't be any getting her back this time. They don't get that many second chances. Third chances. Fourth. She might release him because, as far as she's concerned, she never got a second chance at all. As far as she's concerned, she might as well not even be here. As far as she's concerned, she's dead. He guns the engine, makes it roar. He wants to roar with it, explode his pain and terror out through his throat. He doesn't know if he can do this. He doesn't have a choice. He takes them out of there and devours the road. She doesn't let go. He fell when he saw her. He completely collapsed. The legs disappeared from under him and he went down, knowing that Aaron was gaping at him and not caring. All he could see was her. He was sure he was insane, finally, that he had broken under the weight of everything like he'd been so certain he would do for so fucking long. It was heavy. He'd been doing his best to carry it, trying, trying for her, but he's just a man, and there's only so much he can do, and maybe at last it was too much. Being here, so close to where she died, and where he said his horrible, abortive, mutilated parody of a farewell. He fell. Wanted to crawl toward her. If he was insane, he didn't want to be well. He would accept this, welcome it, because he was exhausted and he didn't want to try anymore, and she seemed so real. When Edward's letter to them, and he groped for her, her knees and Christ, he wanted to kiss her feet. No, she was real. He could touch her wounds. Doubting Thomas, he was. Even though he wanted to accept it without question. Sane or insane. They stared at him as he touched her cheek, her brow. The last terrible one that took her away from him. All healed. Blessed are those who have not seen. And yet have believed. But she stared at him too, uncomprehending. She didn't know him. Then she did, bit by bit. He watched it dawning in her eyes. But it was a gray morning smothered in cloud. She shook her head. She pulled back a little. This man, dark and wild-eyed, unable to stop touching her now that he'd started. He could see himself then. How she must see him. He's not blessed. And she wasn't healed. It takes them about four hours. They hit the foothills, and then the true mountains, and they climb ever upward, switchback after switchback, winding. The ground drops away into blue mist, and the pines rise all around and fall beneath them, and it's beautiful. He never loved these mountains. They were his childhood hell. But he can see why people do. It's a certain perversion that he's bringing her here. I know a place. Came across it once. Big, high up, isolated. Didn't see any walkers. If it's there, if it's the same. If there are any, it's only a few. There's a well, clean water. Not that far from a town. We can forage. I can hunt. We'll be all right. It's beautiful up there. Mountains. 
air is clear. She might, if she sees it. She went there on vacation a few times. She loved it, she told me. It's as good a place as any, right? Right. They climb, and the sun peeks weakly through the clouds and sinks into mid-afternoon. Almost there. Through the town, it wasn't big, no more than a couple thousand people at most, and it existed primarily to serve vacationers, like she must have been. There's a few stores, and for the most part it looks untouched. It's in the middle of fucking nowhere, and he theorizes that most people packed up and headed toward Atlanta when word reached them about the refugee centers and the CDC working on a cure. They pass through the center of it. He sees two walkers stumbling down a side road. Nothing else. He has a pack full of supplies. First aid, canned and dried food. So a trip back won't be immediately necessary. But it's good to know it probably won't be an ordeal when he finally has to do it. Especially since he'll almost certainly be doing it alone. She's a warm little weight against his back, and she has been the whole way. His fears haven't been realized. She didn't let herself fall. And he realizes as they leave town that he could have tied her to him, but he didn't. And he didn't because he needs to trust her. He needs her to understand that he trusts her, to the extent that she can understand it at all. He needs her to see that she can do this, like the walker in the clubhouse. She said she could take care of herself. She did. He waited and watched, and let her find out. They leave the town behind, below, and after another twenty minutes he can see it rising over them, its broad front clinging to a rocky crag and almost leaning precariously over it, walled with huge panes of glass, and as they get nearer he notes that somehow none of them appear to be broken. Some rich fuck had himself a vacation house here, all in splendid isolation, and then the rich fuck left and probably died and never returned to it, so here it stands cold and shining, gleaming in the hazy sun. She could fall from it. She could jump. But he needs to trust her. So this is ridiculous. This is its own fun brand of insanity. And he knows it. Knows that if she kills herself up here, opts out, her blood will be entirely on his hands. But it's also a fact that if she's so far gone that she does that, finishes the job she started and turned away from on the farm, it won't matter. Because in that case, he never would have gotten her back anyway. So, he'll just follow her. It's not melodramatic, it's practical. The morbid convenience of it fills him with black amusement. He's thought about suicide many times since he carried her down those stairs. Each time, he turned away, because she did. They rise and rise, and as they do, he becomes aware that she's holding him tighter. And very slowly, the awareness begins to tear him apart inside. She's holding him. She doesn't want to fall. At least not right now. Thank you, he thinks. And it might be a prayer to her, or to a god in whom he hasn't believed in a long time, or to the universe in general. Thank you. Because as that gleaming house gets nearer and nearer, and the shaded road swoops in increasingly sharper curves, the bike leaning into them, he's actually believing. A little. He's actually finding some faith. It might kill him. It might kill them both. He went from not believing it was true, to wanting it to be true, to... And this is horrible. He will never in a million years admit to this. He can barely admit it to himself. Wishing it wasn't. Wishing she was dead after all. Because he already lost her. He already ground himself through that. 
and it might have been easier than gazing into those clear, blue, blank eyes, that flat gaze. What he got back wasn't her. He looked at her, and she wasn't there. Then he saw that she was. It was like a tiny spark, way down in her void, almost snuffed out. But he didn't think he was imagining it. He held her face in his hands and leaned close, and for a moment he didn't let her fight him off. He forced her, and it hurt to do it. He hated himself, but he had to know. He had to see. She jerked free of him and stumbled back, and Aaron caught her and stared at him, eyes wide, clearly appalled. Aaron doesn't know shit. Except he does. He so does, and Daryl knew it, but it was spiteful and raw, bleeding out from the inside, and he didn't want sympathy. He didn't want understanding. He wanted not to be seeing what he was seeing, what he couldn't unsee. I'm sorry. She suffered massive trauma. We're not exactly equipped. I did my best. Fucking Edwards. Fuck you. Did you really? Did you love her that much? Did you try everything? Did you break yourself trying? Did you run all night until you literally couldn't stand? Did you despise yourself for it after because you suspected that maybe if you tried, you just picked a fucking direction, you could have gone another half mile? Another mile? Two? More? That maybe there was another hour of it in you, hours if you dug deep and you didn't really give her all you had? Would you have given everything, every part of yourself, to go back and get it right? Would you have handed over your legs, your arms, your nose and eyes and ears and tongue, your dick? Would you willingly have sent yourself into motionless, silent darkness if it meant she came back whole and alive and she fucking knew she was? Would you have done that, you worthless prick? Did you really try? Yes, he probably did. She pulled away from him, turned, appeared to focus on Edwards, reached up, and calmly, quietly, with no apparent pain, began to claw at her own face, grabbing her wrists, grabbing her hard enough that her bones ground together in his hands. She was bleeding. She wasn't doing it in half measures. She meant to score her flesh, and she meant to do it as deeply as she could, her struggling again, twisting in his grip, and all the time gazing up at him with that awful blankness. What the fuck? Bellowing. What the fuck is wrong with her? Edwards, low, trembling a little, afraid because he saw what happened to Dawn and he was probably full of visions of his own death and didn't think it would necessarily be quick. She doesn't believe she came back. She thinks she's dead. She thinks she's a walker. Except not all the time. That's the thing. She goes in and out. Most of the time she's quiet, calm. In fact, she's calm as a rule, but the good periods, which are the longest, aren't marked by those occasional, bizarrely determined bouts of self-injury. They know she thinks she's a walker because she told them so, or so Edwards reported. She seemed confused about why they were trying to feed her strawberries, because she needed meat, fresh and raw and bleeding, ideally still screaming. She wasn't violent about it, but she was adamant. She made it very clear. She wouldn't eat the strawberries. They tried a few other things. Nothing worked. After a few days, when she should have been, and in fact was perfectly capable of eating on her own, they restrained and force-fed her. She didn't sleep. She wouldn't stop screaming. But she does have good days. This is a good day. He wasn't sure until she held him tighter, but now he knows... 
and when he pulls up the long drive, broad and stately, no doubt meant for the use of very expensive and preferably foreign cars, and the entire house comes into view with its other large windows and its multiple slanted roofs, its wide deck, its garden with a dry stone fountain, and the careful landscaping almost entirely overgrown, he feels another clutch of hope. He stops by the front door, cuts the engine, waits. She should let him go, let him get off the bike, get off herself. But she doesn't release him, and he doesn't try to make her. Because there's this, her arms around him, strong despite the degree to which her muscles atrophied, and he needs it. She does too, or that's what he's telling himself, but really he does. He can feel her chest expand and contract with her breath. She must be able to feel his. She must. I'm alive. So are you. We're the same. Gradually her arms loosen and she shifts away. She's already climbing off the bike as he is. As he turns to get the pack and unstrap the bow, she walks forward, her gaze swinging everywhere. There are trees all around the house, the house itself. The sun is well and truly emerged now, though it's still haloed in haze, and it catches her hair, lights it up gold. In the hospital, they had to shave it all off when they operated on her. Little bald Beth, he can't decide what the fuck to do with that image. But it's grown out some, and it's long enough to hang around her face, long enough to almost cover the nape of her neck. Even if it wasn't for the scars, he would be reminded of what happened to her every second he looks at her. But she's still crowned in soft gold, and it still makes him ache. And he stands with the bow over his shoulder, and the pack over the other, and watches her, his breath a cold knot in his throat. He catches a glimpse of her face. She's focused, and she looks mildly interested in everything she's seeing. Interested. Shit, yes. He clears his throat, and he has a flash of the back of her all lit rich gold by candlelight, drawing that music out of the old piano with her clever hands, standing there and watching her while something happened inside him that he couldn't hope to explain, and still can't. She glances back at him. It's nice he says, and he sounds so fucking stupid. Right? No answer. Not that he expected one. She does talk, but at highly irregular intervals, and it's almost impossible to predict what will get a response out of her. If she says anything at all to him, it's a gift. She looks interested. For now, he can be satisfied with that. All right. Come on. He joins her, walks past her, looks back to make sure she's following. She is, though he knows that it's almost certainly half-reflex, and not that she actively wants to come with him. She follows people. She follows them because they're meat. The double doors are unlocked. He unshoulders the bow and pushes one open, touches her arm, guides her gently inside. It's big. It's bigger than they need. He stands in the foyer, looking up at the high cathedral ceiling, and he feels like he's walked them into an actual cathedral. Their footsteps echo. Everything is sleek and shiny chrome, and light wood, and white walls, and very modern. The furniture is sparse, and it doesn't look like it was made primarily with comfort in mind. There's almost no art on the walls, few decorations of any kind, and what's there is colorless and abstract, in a way he finds vaguely disturbing. It feels cold, distant, unlived in, and as he moves slowly forward toward the cavernous central kitchen-slash-dining-room-slash-living-room, 
which is walled in that glass for reasons of scenic appreciation, he feels, with a sickening lurch, as though he's walking into her mind. Angles, lines, clean, blank, pristine in a horrible way, fixed in a calm and deadly logic. She's calculating. She's highly rational in the most irrational way possible. She's completely insane, and he was insane for wanting to come up here with her. He tells her to stay put, rapidly checks the whole place. It's clear. Not only no walkers, but no bodies of any kind. Thin, undisturbed layer of dust everywhere. No sign that anyone's been up here in forever. It feels like a clean, bright mausoleum. He returns to the foyer with the bow over his shoulder. He has to pretend to be something resembling enthusiastic. He has to do it for her. He turns back to her and he takes her hand, and she doesn't try to pull away from him. She looks down at their fingers, brow slightly furrowed, and she folds them together. She threads them. He almost bursts into tears. She looks back up at him, brow still knitted together, puzzled. Where are we? He swallows. She's talking. She's holding his hand. She's aware that she's holding his hand, and she's talking to him. This is better than he hoped it would be, so much faster than he expected. Because is it? Is this good and traceable to what he's done? Is this place helping her, and already? Was he right? Did he somehow actually get it right? We're in the mountains, remember? I told you I was taking you up here, because you need... He looks down at their hands, at the floor, at the wall. He can't look at her. Just for a few seconds. He needs to pull himself together. When he first broke in front of her back in Atlanta, it upset her deeply. And if he does it again, he has no idea what it'll do. You need to rest. Oh. She takes a breath, frowning harder, and tugs her hand free from his. She does it carefully, with clear, conscious intent, and he doesn't try to stop her. He's determined that if she's not actually attempting to hurt herself or him, he's not going to try to stop her from doing anything, and neither is he going to force her. She walks away into the big room, the impacts of her boots on the hardwood ringing off the bare walls. He hangs back and follows her slow progress, and he shivers when she runs her hand along the back of a long, low sofa, a built-in bookcase full of black glass sculptures and vintage hardbacks, the stone mantle of the enormous fireplace, a chrome standing lamp. She's engaging. She's there. He wasn't wrong. He did see something, and it wasn't his imagination, wasn't wishful thinking. She's in there, somewhere, and maybe she's not complete, maybe she's in pieces, but he can find her, help her find herself, reassemble and stitch and glue, and put herself back together again. He can do this. He can have a little faith. She reaches the wall of glass and lays her hands flat against it, tilts her head back and looks up, scans the entire thing, like she's mapping it, committing it to memory. He picks that moment to follow her, though he keeps his distance, keeps himself to the center of the room, by the sofa, and an ugly iron and glass coffee table that looks like it might have cost a few thousand dollars. Beth? She turns, looks at him, licks her lips. His heart is pounding into his throat. Who are you? He can't help it. It's not breaking, he tells himself. It's not loud or violent. She might not even be processing what he's doing, might have no idea how to read his face. She has a hard time with faces now, 
Maybe that's a good thing. He goes to the sofa and drops the pack, drops the bow, sinks down onto it, and buries his face in his hands. She does eat. Now she does. It's hard to say if it's a sign of her coming back, but not too long after they had to force-feed her, it was like a switch flipped in her head, and she understood that she could eat normal food, and she was quite willing to do so. She insisted that it wasn't what she really needed, but she ate, and she didn't get into any fights with anyone about it. She ate mechanically. There was no sign that she enjoyed anything, disliked anything, tasted anything at all. But she ate, and she didn't starve, and they didn't have to fuck around with IVs or feeding tubes anymore and that was more than enough to consider progress. Or so Edwards said. He packed candles, but it turns out there's a drawer full of them, and a lot of them scattered around, part of those cold, weird decorations, and he gathers some of them together on the short, blocky dining table, and as the sun goes down, he lights them and sets out dinner. It's just beef jerky and cans of peaches and cranberry sauce and a package of Oreos, Nothing fancy, and frankly pretty weird, though they're more than used to throwing together weird food combinations by now. Depending on what he finds in town, they can maybe put together something better. But for now, this is at least food, and there's plenty of it. Maybe he should be rationing more, but this is their first night here. And he's so fucking stupid for wanting to do this, and it feels so pointless, and he doesn't know why he's giving into this impulse. But it could be a sad little party. Sad little white trash brunch. He'll actually do it, if he can. If the town has them. He'll get some peanut butter and jelly, and soda. He'll even try to get his hands on some pig's feet, because that's something she knows, and maybe she'll taste it and remember. He didn't expect to feel so pathetic every second he's doing this. She's lying on the sofa. She's not sleeping. Her eyes are open, and she's not blinking as much as she probably would under normal circumstances. But she's not blank. She's watching him. She's been watching him all afternoon as he moves around, makes sure the house is clear, makes sure they're still running water, gets together what supplies he can find. There are bedrooms, three of them, and they're big. He wasn't sure whether or not they should use them, whether she should sleep alone, but the idea of a bed is very attractive, especially these, which are very soft, and the sheets on them are a bit musty, but softer and silkier than any he's ever slept on in his life. Like the rest of the stuff here, expensive. What is it about sheets? A thread count or some shit? Something like that. It must be ridiculous. In the end, he dragged two of the mattresses into the main room, kicked aside a table and a couple of chairs to clear some floor. They aren't together. They are, in fact, on opposite ends of the room, with hers near the window, because he feels like she should have at least a little space to herself. But he'll be with her. He'll be able to keep an eye on her. It might not make any difference, but he'll feel better. He doesn't trust her. He can't. Not totally. Not yet. There's another pack on the bike. He didn't let her see him filling it. He'll bring it in later, and he'll do it when he's sure he can hide it well. There are things in it he doesn't want to ever have to use. There are syringes and a few bottles of sedative, which Edwards has showed him how to administer. There are pills to do the same job, only milder and slower and less potentially dangerous. There are cobbled-together versions of the restraints the hospital uses. There's a length of rope. There's a gun. He agonized over that last. If she found it. If she decided to use it. On herself. On him. But then he thought about the cliff and about jumping, and he figured the same logic applied. 
If she wants to do it, if she's really determined, it doesn't matter what the fuck he does. She'll find a way. She's been watching him as he tries to get things settled. Watching him put the sheets back on the mattresses, find blankets. It's only early autumn, and still warm, but it does get chilly up here. Watching him arrange things in some kind of order. Watching him. He doesn't like the way she's watching him. But unless she tries something, there's nothing he can do about it. He finishes, turns to her. Come on over. She doesn't move, watches him. Blinks. He sighs. Everything in him is very heavy. Bath, come on. You gotta eat. He jerks his chin at the plate. There are plates, and he's going to use them. He's going to make this as civilized as possible. We got cranberry sauce. You love that. It's a jelly kind, you know, with the ribs from the can. She does. She did. She did love it. They came upon some once, and he got to see it for himself. She doesn't move. Beth, he murmurs again, and he starts toward her. He's less than five feet from her when she gets up, startlingly fast, every muscle tense, legs slightly spread and center of gravity low. Her face is impassive, but everything about her body screams fight or flight, and he freezes, almost falls back, because she's dangerous. He knows she is. God, he doesn't want to have to actually find out how much. But again, she doesn't move. She's just there. And then, bit by bit, she relaxes. Whatever she saw, whatever got her up like that, it's gone. Or she doesn't care about it anymore. Daryl, she says softly, and there's nothing else, but she knows him again. She at least knows him in the vague way in which she slowly came to recognize him, which he'll gladly accept, in lieu of that hideously total lack of any recognition at all. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. He steps toward her, reaches for her, and she allows him to take her elbow. And when he tugs, she moves unhesitatingly. Placid, calm as a cow. He leads her to the table, and she sits down and eats on her own, without any prompting. She eats, and she eats everything in front of her, but she eats in that same automatic way, as if she's refueling a machine, and when she's done, she doesn't comment on any of it, or ask for any more. She simply stares down at her plate, once again with that faintly puzzled expression. If it comes to that, he eats in much the same way. He tastes nothing. He eats because he has to be strong. For her... He doesn't take his eyes off her the entire time. It's something. He has to keep thinking like that. It's something. There's a woodpile outside, and he gets a fire going, big and bright and throwing odd shadows around the room. It's already cooling down a good bit, and he guides her over to it and sits her down on the floor in front of it, gets her a blanket, and puts it over her legs. She doesn't seem aware of it, or she doesn't seem to have any opinion about it, but she doesn't resist him, and again he counts that as something. He sits down next to her, cross-legged. Not too close, but close enough for her to feel him. There's a long period of nothing but the crackle of the fire. Then he takes a breath and drags himself together, wrenches, and forces some words out of his useless fucking mouth. You sang by the fire, remember? Used to do that a lot. Nothing, but he didn't expect anything. He pushes on. At the prison, first night we were there, with everyone, 
We cleared out the walkers. That was... He trails off for a second, chewing at the inside of his cheek, biting until he tastes copper. That was a good night. You were smiling. Everyone was. You and Maggie, you sang together. You remember that? Nothing. Except the corner of her mouth twitches. Maybe. It might have done. The corner of her mouth and then her hand. He's not imagining that, settling over the blanket, drawing it up a little higher. Not reflex, not unconscious and meaningless motions to go through. She's pulling it up because she wants to. You remember what she sang? His hands are shaking. This is awful. Come on, you gotta remember. What did you sing? He falls silent. He can't push anymore. He knows he should wait, give her a chance, but he also almost can't bear to. It took everything out of him to say what he said, to remember it himself. That night, watching her by the fire, lit up like she is now, so beautiful, and listening to her, and that was beautiful too, and it hurt, and he didn't understand why. Still doesn't. Not completely. He didn't. She looks at him. Looks right at him. Focuses. Licks her lips and parts them. Yes. Yes, girl, come on. Try. Try for me. She looks away. She doesn't say anything. She doesn't look at him again. At some point, he gives up and puts her to bed. He tucks her in like a child. And he feels like maybe he shouldn't. Like it's wrong somehow. Like it's stepping across some kind of line. But before he leaves her, he strokes her hair back from her face. And allows his hand to linger. Her hair is soft. She's soft. Still, even now, even when her eyes are so hard, soft and warm, and alive. He does break, then. It's quiet. She probably doesn't notice. She doesn't seem to notice when he leans down and presses his lips to her temple. Lingers there, too. She smells fresh, clean, bright. She smells like the color of her hair. Good night, girl. We'll try again tomorrow. This is where it starts by Redneck Saints. This is where it starts. There's a loud crack that comes down upon his skull like thunder. He doesn't feel it at first, only hears the deafening sound of screams blending in with the initial blow. His vision splits in two. He sees the man standing before him with that wicked grin, but he also sees a girl. She's standing behind his enemy, wisps of blonde hair fading in and out of focus. He can't really see her, but he knows she's there. Another crack, and this time he feels it. It vibrates down his spine, leaving him paralyzed with fear and agonizing pain. It doesn't last much longer than that. Within a split second, everything around him begins to fade. But not the girl. She remains in the forefront of his focus, and every time he blinks, she becomes a little bit clearer. Her eyes, they're blue. Her skin, it's pale and smooth. It's completely unblemished, so he knows it can't be her. Not his girl, 
the girl with scars on her face and a bullet wound through the back of her skull. But she's moving closer. And when she's completely in focus, nothing blurred and nothing skewed, he sees her. Tears leak from his eyes at the sight of her. It's her. It's Beth. He fell to his side with the second hit. So as she walks toward him, he takes her in at an angle. She crouches beside him and slides her slender fingers through his hair. This somehow hurts more than the blow to his head. She feels real. But she can't be. She just can't. Daryl. She whispers his name, her voice light and full of innocence. He's closed his eyes. The sight of her is too much to take, but she's calling him back. She's coaxing his lids to open again and face her. Daryl, open your eyes. No, he lets out harshly. He doesn't mean to offend her. He doesn't want to be rude, but he can't look at her. He can't risk watching her disappear. You're not real, he cries. This ain't real. His tears have leaked down the length of his face. They're spilling into his mouth and dripping single drops at a time onto the ground. One. Two. Three. He counts them as he feels them release from his skin, but he still refuses to open his eyes. Wouldn't kill you to have a little faith, she says. Her words hit him hard. It's a memory. It's his memory. That's all. This perfect, wonderful, special girl can't be here. She's dead. He watched it happen. He watched her blood splatter across the wall in that hallway where he felt his heart break into a million splintering pieces. He still fights to keep the jagged edges at bay. Every single day he feels them moving inside him, leaving marks and making new scars, ones he can't ever heal from, because that would mean thinking about her, and that's just too damn hard to do. But he's thinking about her now. He still feels her hand, and it feels solid. Maybe this is real. Or maybe it's something else. Am I dead? He asks quietly. She waits a moment, keeping silent and keeping still. Then he feels her move. When he finally decides that it's safe to face her, she's lying next to him on the ground. They're parallel to one another, nose to nose, and blue eyes staring back like a mirror. No, she says. Not yet. Is that why you're here? He says it out loud, but he stops himself short of spilling more. If he is dying, has she come to take him with her? Please, God... Let me go with her. Don't let her leave again. I don't know, she confesses, lips trembling. She looks so fucking real. So fucking beautiful. It hurts. I'm here because you brought me. He takes a risk and moves his hand. He lifts it slowly to her face and lets it fall gently against her temple. He gasps and catches his breath when he feels the texture of her hair. He weaves it between his fingers, letting each strand linger and fall away slowly. He runs his thumb across her forehead where the skin is perfectly smooth. No scars. No pain. Just Beth. Why? he asks. Because you miss me. Just like I told you. The sobs that rack his body can't be held back. They swarm his senses and take over everything. He can't breathe. He can't speak. Her touch feels white-hot, and her voice sounds far away. Too far. Beth, please, he cries. Don't leave. She shushes him, tangling her fingers between his where they rest against her face. As he continues to cry, she continues to soothe him. 
Then he hears her start to sing. It's something he doesn't recognize, and he's too caught up in her being here to really hear the words. Nonetheless, her voice does something. It stills him, keeps him calm. It keeps him from losing all control and giving in to the heartache. He wants to lay down his weapons. He wants to surrender right here and now, but she's not just here to comfort him. She's trying to pull him back. She wants him to keep fighting, even though it might mean giving up on her completely. But he doesn't want to fight. He's done it for too long, and he's tired. He's so tired. You can stay, she says, after singing the last note of her lament. Here, he questions. With you? She nods once, then looks away. Or you can go back. They need you. But I need you. You have me. She places one hand on his chest, just above his heart. Here. His memory flashes back to the moonshine shack, the two of them sitting on the porch, him telling her the truth about his worth, about his shame. You have to put it away, she'd said, or it kills you. Here. But what if he can't? He allows his forehead to fall against hers, and he breathes her in. She smells like earth and sky, like moonshine and grape jelly, picnics and summer holidays. My girl, he says. You are my girl. He feels her smile, so he smiles too. He allows himself this split second of happiness with her beside him, because he knows it's fleeting. He knows it won't happen again, not in his lifetime, nor in hers. Because it was too short, and it was too unfair. I don't want to go back, he tells her. I can't fight anymore, Beth. I'm done. She lifts her eyes and meets his gaze. Are you sure? He nods and mumbles something that she takes as affirmation. Okay. Her body shifts closer to his. He pulls her into his arms and relaxes against her chest. He breathes with the movement of her lungs, in and out, up and down. On the count of three? Her eyes are so bright, so full of hope and everything he thought the world had killed. But it couldn't douse the fire that burned in her heart. It couldn't take her spirit. He takes a deep breath. One. Two. She does the same. Three. Comes out between them at once as their lips meet. Within a split second, everything begins to fade. In an instant, all feeling in his body begins melting away. He feels light. No heaviness. No darkness. Just her. Just his girl lying next to him for all eternity. He could stay here. He could be happy. This is where it starts. And we're back. Hi. Yeah, so... <laughs> that was awful. I, I have to say, I didn't intend this. If, if again, if you if you know me, if you follow my writing, if you follow the shit that I say about my writing, one of the things that you know probably is that about seventy percent of the stuff that comes up in my fic that I think is cool is stuff that I never intended to do. It just sort of fucking happens, which is great. Although at times it's also a little creepy. But I think something kind of similar happened here. I did not intend for all of these to be reunion stories, but they all are. 
And they're all remixes on reunion stories where I think often in this fandom we make those reunion stories happy. Uh, we made them happy, you know, before Coda because we just wanted happy reunion. And also the show was building it up like it was going to fucking happen. Yeah. And we wanted a happy story because, yeah, because it wouldn't. So a lot of the reunion stories we wrote were happy then. Then Coda happened and it was like, no, fuck you. This is completely something we reject. And we're going to write more happy reunion stories where everything's great. You know, or maybe things are a little difficult, but, but in the end, everything is fine. And that is not the case in all three of these. Now, you know, in Burn, I have faith that things aren't going to end horribly, and the chapter doesn't end horribly. They're together, everything's okay, it's awkward and a little tense, and as usual, Daryl has no idea what the fuck is going on with himself and also his penis. But, you know, it's fine. But at the beginning with the reunion, it's really less than ideal in some pretty major ways. So you have that. And then in Safe Up Here With You, the reunion, it's so awful in so many ways that Daryl is actually, at one point, pushed into feeling like, God, I almost wish this hadn't even happened. It would have been easier in some ways if she actually was dead. Which is, you know, that's kind of like the worst place he could possibly be, right? That's, that's fucking awful. And then in This Is Where It Starts, it's like the worst. Because they're uniting as he's dying. And uh, yeah, I guess, you know, it's sort of uplifting at the end, but it's, it's, I wouldn't personally call it a sad ending because I just don't think that that's the tenor of it at the end. I think it's actually in many ways kind of a darkly uplifting ending. It's the kind of quote unquote sad ending that I like. It's a, it's a, it's a thing that takes something really terrible and makes it something that's actually kind of not happy, but something that it doesn't completely kill you inside. Or if it does, it does leave a little bit of light, you know, in the midst of a lot of darkness. But all three of these are, I think, in some respects, reactions to kind of the conventional reunion story as a lot of us write it. And I think that's awesome. Just kind of love how that shook out. I'm not sure what I'm going to be reading for the next one shot. I have a couple of things lined up. I'm excited about all of those possibilities. You'll obviously find out. I don't know if the next one I record is going to be in this format. Again, it really depends on my workload and, and what my life is looking like right then. Uh, as of right now, I have a job for all of next year, which is great, but it does mean that I'm probably going to be busier starting at the end of August because it's a teaching job. So we'll just kind of have to see how I can make things work. But yeah, this, this will happen again, and it will happen again soon. And you'll clearly know when it does. Uh, just a reminder before I say goodbye to you, while I do this for the love of it, and I would be doing it anyway, and I have been doing it anyway for a really long time, if you want to support this podcast, well, actually, you know what, if you want to support it regardless, signal boost it, because the more people listen to it, the more awesomer it is. But also, if you want to support things a little more materially, and you want to kind of help justify for me the amount of time that I put into this, which is, again, kind of considerable, I have a Patreon. If you go to my Tumblr, dynamicsymmetry.tumblr.com, at the very top there, with my little group of links, there is a link to my Patreon. If you want to toss some money my way, do a small monthly donation, that's hugely appreciated. Thank you so, so much to the people who've already done that. It's, it's awesome, and I can't tell you how much I love you. Uh, if you don't want to fuck around with Patreon, there is a tip jar on the front page of the website for this podcast. That's keepsingingpodcast.wordpress.com. There is a picture of a little tip jar down at the bottom there. If you click that, that takes you to PayPal. And again, you can set up a recurring donation or you can toss like a few bucks my way one time. And that is amazing too. And again, people have already done that. And I appreciate you so, so much because among other things, you're helping me pay for the SoundCloud account, which is good because it means I never have to delete any content. I have as much space as I want. And that is lovely. 
So yeah, I'm going to shut up now, let you go. Thank you so much for listening. I hugely appreciate it. This has been a lot of fun and I am really looking forward to doing it again. And hopefully that will be soon. Bye.